welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. This week, I'm happy to bring you yet another fantastic course from the Commune Library. As you may know, in addition to being a podcast, Commune is also a video course platform featuring a wide range of programs from top teachers on personal growth, yoga, meditation, spirituality, functional medicine, nutrition, and social impact. Essentially, everything that you need to be holistically well. This week, you will be hearing from Ayurvedic practitioner Nidhi Pandya. Now, for those of you who are new to Ayurveda, here's a little background. Ayurveda is a holistic system of medicine that is indigenous and widely practiced in India. And the word Ayurveda itself is a Sanskrit term meaning the science of life. Ayu means life or daily living, and Veda is knowing. Ayurveda is thus a medical system that deals with health in all of its aspects, physical health, mental health, spiritual well-being, social welfare, environmental considerations, and dietary and lifestyle habits, as well as treating and managing specific diseases. In her program, Ayurvedic Nutrition, Nidhi shares a holistic approach to nourishing your body through the lens of Ayurveda. You'll learn how to better time your meals, strengthen digestion, use traditional Ayurvedic spices, and explore the connection between what you eat and how you actually feel. By the end of this course, you will have a newfound clarity and an action plan for lasting health in a way that's right for you. So over the course of the next five days, we will be releasing the first five parts of Nitty's course. Now, if you want to watch the full video version, which includes 10 core lessons plus a downloadable workbook, well, then I encourage you to go to onecommune.com trial and sign up for a free trial of Commune membership. That's onecommune.com trial. There you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including the full-length version of Ayurvedic Nutrition. Now, we'll always email you before your free trial is up. But if you continue on to become a Commune member, well, thank you. Our members are the key reason, really, we are able to create and share free content like this. And if you regularly tune into this podcast, I also ask that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite pod catcher. Tap follow show and leave a review. It makes a huge difference. And now here's day five, where you will learn the various food groups and assess their elemental dominance, their taste, and then determine what their action is in the body. So the concept of the five elements and the six tastes and the potency of foods and all of them coming together makes things very interesting. But then I also bring about the question that how do you actually evaluate different foods? And yes, that takes a little bit of practice, but there are also multiple different types of foods in the same food group. So for this segment, what I'm going to do with you is go through various food groups and we're going to assess their elemental dominance, their taste, and then determine what their action is. So we're going right back to the principle of 
the elements and the gunas, the properties that they carry in terms of their taste, and then the karmas. And we'll be able to understand what it might do to our digestion and how we can balance it. So let's really start out with the main, the main portion of your food, which is madhura rasa, according to Ayurveda, grains. And the first grain that comes to mind, which the whole world is either obsessed with or talking about, and that is wheat. So wheat, considered to be the staple for a lot of the period in our history, is heavy if you look at the grain, if you look at a crop, it's heavy in the elements of earth and water, which means that it's definitely something that's going to build you, but it's also something that needs a good amount of digestive fire. Think about if you were cooking something in the oven, which was kind of heavier and denser, you would either need to let it sit for a longer time or be at a higher temperature or both. So wheat is heavy, earthy, has of course a secondary of the water element. It may be nourishing and cell building, but it may be hard to break down. But then it also brings us to the problem of wheat today. And, you know, gluten has been one of the biggest villains in our entire food industry. So is this real, according to Ayurveda? What has happened is that over, over the centuries, right, our population has risen, but farmlands have decreased. So the crop really has been corrupted, has been adapted several different times. And the gluten content, the composition of gluten in the wheat crop has kind of been altered. When you look at the word glue, right, it's literally like a glue-like substance, which can feel very sticky to your gut. And Think about it, when something is sticky and it's sticking to your gut, which is a warm place, it's creating inflammation. Your gut is cooking that slime even further and making it inflamed. And this is one of the reasons when people suffer from poor agni, poor digestive fire, one of the first things they become intolerant is to the gluten that wheat carries. That being said, if you are tolerant to the gluten and you have an you have an agni that functions well it can be very nourishing and cell building the varieties i recommend often are in corn and emmers which have not been played on by human beings as much the second the second grain is rice now rice is my favorite go to because rice is still not as corrupted as wheat is and it's a very benign crop Rice takes in a lot of water, right? It's water dominant. It's much softer than wheat. If you were to cook a whole grain of rice, you know, it would be softer and more moist than wheat. And that brings me back to the elemental properties of rice. Rice is heavy in water and earth. And because of the water rice takes to grow on a farm and even the amount of water rice absorbs and it has, it carries. It's a very cooling, it's a very cooling grain. Now, what is the right type of rice to consume? A lot of people in the Ayurveda world have known of basmati rice. Now, traditionally, the type of rice that Ayurveda recommends you eat is short-grained rice, which is much easier to digest. 
But what's more important than that is for the rice to be aged. We talked about the water content that rice has. Now we're looking at our gut and it's this warm and moist place. And when you consume something with a lot of water content in it, what it does, it takes it from moist to humid. And I want you to think about what happens when there is excessive humidity anywhere in the world. There's mold, there's tropical bugs, there's mosquitoes, there's parasites. So not to eat, eating really fresh grains, which have a lot of water content, is one of the biggest leading causes for parasites in the gut. But if you go to a lot of the grocery stores, you'll see that rice is kept in big jute bags. In fact, if you go to an Indian store, you'll always see that it says aged rice, which means that it's been sitting for a whole year for the moisture to dry out so that it doesn't carry that level of moisture. Rice is light, cooling, watery. One variety that I recommend, which is not very difficult to find, is called Sona Masuri, which is always short-grained and aged. Now, the third grain that Ayurveda talked about was barley. And barley is a very interesting grain because it's nourishing, but it's not overly building. Barley has a kind of husk, whole grain barley is what was recommended, and sometimes barley flour roasted. But it's a little husky, which means it is a little earthy, but it is a little drying. Anything that has husk and fiber can dry you out because it has the ability to scrape off, which made it a very good grain for those who were trying to lose some extra tissue in their bodies. So while wheat and rice go very nicely in building cells and building tissues, you still want to use a grain that's going to build you up in the right way, but not overbuild you. And barley was used for that purpose. It's earthy, its secondary element is not water, secondary element is kind of wind, and it allows for some scraping action. It's especially recommended for those who have obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. It can scrape off excess slime and kind of really change the viscosity of your blood. I'm also going to talk about millets, right? Because of their high nutrient content, millets are, you know, have become very predominant in the food industry. But they're not the madhura rasa, the sweet tasting grains that you need for everyday cell building. For that, rice is a go-to. And second, if you can digest and have good quality wheat, it's sweet. Millets can be a little bit more drying in nature. And, and you don't want to dry yourself out. So millets are to be consumed in moderation, seasonally. If you're living in a place that grows millet, maybe two to three times a week. While some of the other grains can be consumed every day, millets can be consumed two to three times a week. And because they're dry, you want to make sure you've added good fats. Now, when you look at all of the grains, right, you, they're, all of them are heavy in earth and water, which means they could be heavy to your agni. Even rice, which is the lightest of the bunch, could still be slightly heavy to your agni. So I recommend and Ayurveda recommends soaking grains. You can soak grains depending on, depending on the density of the grain, anything from 30 minutes to even up to three hours. Sometimes you can soak them overnight if you need to. And that kind of really loosens that outer fiber, starts the breakdown process at that outer level so they can cook faster and break down faster in your system. 
What I also recommend is when you're cooking these, you want to throw in a good spice. A good spice will again speed up the breakdown, you know, will make it easier to digest in your digestive system. So you can, depending on what you're cooking, you can throw in a bay leaf, you can throw in a cinnamon stick, maybe some cloves in there, whatever is handy, but use your spices to kind of be able to break down your greens so that they're less heady. And, you know, there are also certain foods that are eaten as a replacement to grain, for example, cauliflower rice or lentil pasta or even quinoa. Now, those don't really fall under this whole umbrella of grain and they don't carry the same essential properties that the sweet tasting foods, the cell building foods carry, and therefore they cannot be substituted for that portion of your meal. Now we come to the hero food group for our protein obsessed generation, which is lentils and beans. So of course, lentils have really won the prize for the last many years in plant protein, all types of protein. But let's really again examine the elemental composition of lentils and see if they are easy to digest, what they do for us. So lentils, right, just even looking at them, feeling the, the grains, and you notice that lentils are quite earthy, very dense. So they're very earth dominant. In terms of their taste, they are a little sweet tasting, but they're also very astringent. They're quite dry and that makes them astringent. Now, if it's very earthy, also makes them very, very hard to digest. They, of course, add to the element of earth, they add to your muscles, which, is, which are very earthy in your body but they also are very hard to digest. So let's look at some of the different lentils. And I can tell you from my childhood, being vegetarian, lentils were a must every day, but they came with many, many rules. There was a little bowl of lentil of your choice for lunch, but lentil of the dinner time lentil, always a small bowl of split moong dal. Every single day of my life growing up, I ate a little bowl of split moong dal. Moong dal or moong split lentils are the easiest and the lightest to digest. And one of the rules that I use to assess what makes it easy for a lentil to be digested is, I say the more time it takes to make, the longer it takes to break. So if you're cooking something forever, just be prepared that your gut is going to take a long time for it to break it down. So these earthy astringent lentils, moong lentils, and all the other lentils that we're going to be talking about, they can all be balanced. You balance the earth by making sure you're cooking them in enough water. You add good fats and you use your good spices as well. So the traditional recipe for an Ayurvedic dal always has a great amount of water, as well as spices, as well as good amount of ghee, because that's really what makes the lentils digestible. Which also means that lentil pastas, which don't really have that, as well as plant protein powders can sometimes, that's why being very, very drying to your system. And yes, while they kind of shape and mold your muscle and makes it, make it drier to go into, uh, make your fat into muscle, what it can do is leave you really dry and prone to injury. So I recommend if you're doing any of those, you wanna add either a teaspoon of coconut oil, drink it with a liquid, 
maybe some warm water, maybe some warm churned yogurt, but you want to add that kind of moisture to it, right? So in terms of the order of preference, moong split lentils are the most recommended. Now still yet a lot of people have this digestive discomfort with the green lentils because their agni has already been weakened and they cannot digest the fiber which really makes the lentils astringent. I then say you can try the yellow, which is peeled split moong. It's the same, it's the same essential lentil, but the peel has been removed. The next one of choice is brown lentils. You see brown lentils that are often used in mujadara, in a lot of lentil soups, the brown lentils, which have the orange peeled variety. They are second to this. Then come all other types of lentils in kind of ascending order because they can all be a little bit more heavier to digest. It doesn't matter what lentil you're using, you still want to use the same rule that the more it takes to make, the longer it will take to break. You wanna make sure you have good fats added to it, spices added to it, and cooked really well. Of course, just as you soak your grains, you also want to soak your lentils. Sometimes you wanna even soak them overnight, especially if they're whole lentils. And you see that often with beans, which takes me to my next category, which is very, very similar, which is beans. Now, a lot of people interchange lentils for beans and beans for lentils because we look at food as just protein. Beans are much harder to digest. They take much longer to make. And if you've ever cooked beans yourself, you probably notice that it leaves a slime in the water. It actually releases and makes the water slimy, which again makes it inherently very hard to digest, which does not mean that you can never eat beans. But I recommend beans more for lunch when your Agni is happier, more active rather than beans for dinner. Also, traditionally, beans were cooked with a lot of animal fat. And I keep emphasizing on fat to cook these heavy foods. And it might bring to your mind that these are already so earthy. Why am I making them heavier by adding fats? But I just want to give you the thought that if you were to say, let's say, cook potatoes or cook something that you're used to cooking, would they cook better when you add a good fat to it or not? Cooking them without a fat would really make it harder for them to break down and cook. Which means that fat, really good fat, serves as a fuel with the fire to break down your foods. And this is why, as I said, traditionally, a lot of beans were cooked with animal fat or some kind of good fat. Brings us again to the point that if you are using beans, you want to soak them well overnight, hopefully. Use a good amount of water, good amount of fat, good amount of spices just like the greens and the lentils you can add a cinnamon stick a bay leaf cloves any spice you find to them to help break those faster now in terms of the different varieties of beans right black beans are usually right the shorter the smaller the bean and you will assess how long is it going to take this particular variety to cook and how slimy does it leave my water will tell you how easy it is to digest. Traditionally, the traditional variety of black beans is the easiest to digest, and then come your pink beans, your red beans. The bigger kidney beans are a little bit harder to digest. 
We have some other foods in this category of lentils and beans, and I would say things like chickpeas and other kinds of peas. Now, if you've seen a cooked chickpea and you've seen a cooked bean, and you kind of just break them down and bite them, the bean is denser than the chickpeas. And the chickpeas are earth dominant, but their secondary is more wind. And a lot of people experience that discomfort, in fact, with both, with the beans and the chickpeas. So, you know, I'm going back to the example of hummus because I love it. It was eaten with always a good fat, olive oil, garlic, herbs, it was balanced that way. So if you're eating any of those foods and chickpeas also become a common ingredient in a lot of different packaged foods. Again, much harder, very hard to digest. If you're using any of these foods, make sure you've added your spices and your good fats, plenty of water to make your lentils and your beans more digestible. How often have you heard, eat your veggies? Now, that's a lovely statement and a lovely direction, but really, just as we know that wheat is so different from rice, each vegetable can be different from the other. They're not all the same in their nourishment and in their nutrient quality. So we really need to break this down and understand our vegetables differently. I'm going to take my first category of vegetables, which is fleshy vegetables. And while it's not technically a category, anything that you can cut and see that it's a little fleshy. And I love to use the example of zucchini for it. But a lot of zucchini, squashes, any kind of gourd, if you were to go to an Indian or an Asian store, you'd see all different shapes and sizes of gourds, all of them, right? And to think about what elements they carry, they definitely are dense, so they are earthy, but they also are very much heavy in water. So earth and water come together to make those fleshy vegetables. And anything that has earth and water, which is building, which are the building blocks of life, really support cell building. So they become really important when it comes to that active cell building. And especially when you're skimping on greens, you definitely want to add in these fleshy vegetables. Once again, they may be mildly heavy. They're usually water dominant. And one of the ways you know that they're water dominant is when you actually cook them, they become very moist and they start cooking very, very quickly. But even for your vegetables, because they're earth heavy and you want to have all meals balanced, you want to cook them and you want to add some level of fat and spice to these fleshy vegetables. But in my mind, they really take the cake and they're really at the top of the spectrum when it comes to different vegetables can be digested by almost everybody because of their water content. Now, the second category, which is very famous in the Ayurvedic world, is root vegetables. Now, these are great, but can be tricky. And for that, I want you to just imagine a sweet potato and, you know, how heavy does that sweet potato feel? And it's very nutritious. It's very earth heavy. And yes, it has a secondary of water, not as much as the fleshy veggies, but it still carries water, but very heavy in earth. Often these root veggies like turnips, beetroots, sweet potatoes, a lot of other kind of things that grow underground can be substituted occasionally for your main grain because they're also sweet in their taste. But once again, they are heavy to digest. So they require a little bit more digestifier than the fleshy veggies. So the question now comes is, how do you cook these root vegetables? And of course, you know, Ayurveda believes in boiling certain vegetables to start to break them down 
easily. In a laboratory, occasionally, you'd see that boiling changes the nutrient content. But again, you're not what you eat, you're only what you digest. You're eating something nutrient-rich, but if you cannot break it down, you cannot utilize it. So you boil it. But my recommendation is that you don't want to have just boiled or steamed root veggies. You need to roast them before you can actually consume them. And roasting them in a good fat, adding that little fuel, right, that require that slow, sustainable fuel, adding good amount of spices, consuming them warm, makes these root vegetables more digestible and sometimes they can act as a substitute for grains. I say if you're skipping grains in the evening because your dinner is supposed to be small, then you can add, you know, you can have a nice roasted sweet potato or you can either substitute your vegetables for lunch and consume these at lunchtime. Now, the next group of vegetables, again, which have been really popular in the last few years are cruciferous vegetables. And um, if you don't know what cruciferous is, imagine anything that looks like a flower, whether it's cabbage, whether it's broccoli, or Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. And they've kind of found to be low in their calorie content. And in our generation, anything that's low in its calorie content wears the crown. But just think about it. If it's lower in calorie content, what is the element that it's dominant in? They're definitely not watery. They must be low on earth and they must be high in wind. Anything that's low on earth, on the element of earth, is automatically less grounding and therefore more windy. And a lot of people that I work with complain that broccoli makes them really gassy and cauliflower makes them really gassy. And for good reason, because the essential element in these cruciferous vegetables is air, is wind. So how is it that you can consume and balance these? Now, out of all the other groups of vegetables, you really need to cook these extremely well. And there are certain spices that do very well. So I would say adding sesame seeds, adding fennel seeds, adding sesame oil can really change, alter their property. And the reason why I bring up sesame is because sesame is very heavy in earth. It's very, very grounding. So it's like that when that helium balloon, that wind goes up, you want to ground it with something heavy. And sesame makes it very easy. In fact, even the flavor. So the flavor of these, I just love how the universe works to kind of support each other. The flavor for these cruciferous vegetables, they kind of really, it's enhanced when you use sesame or you use fennel. So those are my top two spice recommendations or seed recommendations for you to use with cruciferous vegetables. Again, I would say if you feel like your agni is compromised, you want to consume these during lunch and not during dinner. Now comes to comes the last group of vegetables. And while I can roughly call it nightshades, what I really love is I, I rather identified this group of substances that are called vidahi. And the word vidahi in Sanskrit, right, it means inflammatory. So it recognized that there's certain foods that are inflammatory. And it's remarkable because this is way before we understood inflammation ourselves. But because this whole ecosystem, this whole warm and moist place is numero uno, anything that takes it off became so important. And some of the vegetables that it puts in this category is tomatoes and eggplants 
and sometimes onion and sometimes garlic. And it's amazing that we've identified these to be nightshades, which kind of add to the inflammation in our body. So if you're having, if you have any inflammatory condition, tomatoes are not recommended. Occasionally you can pulp the tomatoes out and if they're very sweet tasting, then they can be consumed. Eggplants, right? Any kind of eggplants, aubergine can create again a really, really dense type of heat in the system and cause inflammation, even skin conditions. Now, which doesn't mean that you can't eat these veggies and that they don't have any use. They do have use sometimes in the winter months, sometimes if your body is feeling really cold and depleted, these can be consumed. But otherwise, these are to be limited by almost everybody. Now let's talk about meats. So the first thing I want to clarify is because a lot of people come to Ayurveda from yoga, they kind of assume that it is a vegetarian science or a vegan science, only plant-based. But I want to bring you back to the perspective that yoga is the science of energy, you know, of us going back to our energetic state. And Ayurveda is the science of matter, right? At some point, they both coincide and they collide because you need to protect this body to be able to get into the energetic state or identify that. But uh, Ayurveda utilizes meats for the preservation of life. Now, while I grew up vegetarian and there is a way to be vegetarian, certain foods you can include, Ayurveda does not condemn meat. Of course, there's been a lot of issues with the farming of meat and how meat really exists in our day and age today. But the two substances that you can see the texts often reference is fat from the meats. So meats are earthy and they will support muscle building, but also boiling meats and the fat that's kind of released out of those meats from the water can actually go and supplement all the good fat, the mucus lining, the collagen in your body. And it's kind of understood now in the modern day world that the collagen is boosted from that animal fat as well. And the other type of meat that it talks about is bone broth, right? So bone marrow, right, which is not only just important for our bone health, but it's also very important for our nervous system, is extremely underrated. And there are few things that can actually reach that deep of a tissue. Abhyanga or oil massage is one of them for all my vegetarian population. But in terms of food items, bone broth is that substance which is recommended. Now, of course, both of these fats, right? So the fat from the meats and the fat from the bones, they're both very heavy to digest and again need to be consumed with good amounts of water and spices. Now while I'm here I want to talk about the order of fats that Ayurveda talks about. It talks about the first good fat being ghee, second being taila or oil and in Ayurveda oil is usually sesame oil but there are of course other different types of oil and the third is fat from meats and the fourth is bone broth. And they all have, they all work very well together or they all work separately for this specific function. But these are the four major fats that are identified and meats can be consumed, cooked with water and good spices. Now let's take it to seafood. And again, right, we put seafood in this whole big bucket, which is common. With seafood, right, 
understanding that if this fish has lived in water, there is they their bodies carry a lot of water content. So one thing that can happen, right, with fish is they can add a lot of slime to your gut. And with that, with that slime, that moist becomes humid and people can get parasites. Anywhere there is extra moisture, you can expect candida, you can expect parasites, you can expect worms. So again, with fish, you wanna cook them, make sure that they're very well dry, they're very well spiced, roasted. And then again, there is a differentiation between freshwater and saltwater fish. And I am going to ask you at this point to kind of go back to the properties of salt. Was it warming? Was it cooling? What did it do? So salt is warming. It's kind of heating. So salt water fish kind of is heating and it adds to slime. Anything that's heating and has the ability to puff you up becomes inflammatory. And salt water fish again gets put back into the group of foods which is called vidahi or inflammatory. So with that, if saltwater fish is inflammatory, you want to try and go for freshwater fish as much as possible, but also not make seafood the main part of your diet because it can add to slime. Now, another important category which has become a villain is dairy. Now, Ayurveda is a lover of dairy. Not all things dairy, but let's really slow down and understand dairy. Right. So back in the day when people had their own farms and their own cows and there was a very loving process for this milk to be extracted, you know, and it was usually extra milk and there were calves that may have died during the delivery because times were such and that milk is considered to be an elixir. But there are certain rules of consumption. Firstly, in Ayurveda, it does talk about animal milk and it talks about how because of the principle of Samanya Vishesha Siddhant, which says that when you want to supplement something in your body, you want to consume something from the universe, which is similar. Us being mammals, us being familiar with milk from the time we were infants, right? Milk really goes and supports that kind of cellular building. It's sweet tasting and human beings have familiarity with milk but of course right the content milk has changed in its content today the milk that ayurveda talked about often comes from a very different type of cow with a hump on its back and you know eating good fodder much leaner lower in fat lower in the casein protein so it was a lighter type of milk and yet the recommendation is to always cook the milk, preferably with a good spice. So the milk was cooked to bring a natural pasteurization as well as a good spice was added to it to alter anything that you needed to alter in its properties and only then milk could be made digestible. Today's farming has led to cows eating all kinds of fodder. There are different, there are cows that are heavier, different breeds of cows. The milk is heavier in protein, and that's why it's not digestible for everybody. But if you do have access to A2 type of milk, you know, grass-fed cows, non-homogenized, I would say that you want to try to cook it and consume it. You want to make sure that it's always whole milk because the fat in the milk is essential as a fuel to break down the protein that the milk contains. In terms of spices, you may use a little bit of turmeric, 
You may use dried ginger, you may use licorice, depending on what you're going through and what your taste preferences are. Now with dairy, another category that comes up is cheese. Cheese, usually paired with wine and for good reason, right? I want you to just think about how we cook cheese and how it can become stringy and slimy. And now since we're using this intuitive science to look outside, to know what happens within, that's what cheese does. It becomes very stringy and slimy in your system. And it can get stuck to your channels and block your channels within. And that's why cheese is usually paired with wine because wine has that sharp piercing nature to really break down the cheese. So the cheese supports the wine, so it doesn't, the wine does not go and drink up your mucus lining, and the wine will support the cheese, so it doesn't go and block your channels. But generally, it's not a food for everyday consumption unless you've consumed it since you were a child, since your body is very used to it. You know, it's something that you can consume maybe a couple of times a week in moderation. One more group I'd like to talk about is yogurt, right? Because again, we've made yogurt this great hero food. And while yogurt has tremendous benefits, it's one of those foods that you don't consume every single day. And the reason for that is, I just want you to imagine when you put yogurt in a container and you empty out the container, you can usually see residue of that yogurt sitting inside because yogurt naturally does not move through channels easily. Even if you were to put, you know, let's say water and you empty the water, it's emptied. Juice is emptied out, milk is emptied out fully, but yogurt will have these little globules that will stick to the container. And which is that it's of this incomplete consist consistency between solid and liquid. You know, kind of like a dough that you're making, which is not, which does not have enough water or too much water, which becomes a little sticky. And that's what how yogurt is. So yogurt is to be consumed in Ayurveda only if you can add a little bit of either sugar to it, rock sugar, and we'll talk about sugar and that can kind of cool it down because yogurt is fermented and hot and you whip it in, it changes the consistency. Or amla, which is, which is a fruit, amla powder, dried amla powder, or you can add some honey and that's going to change its properties. But one of the best way to utilize the probiotics in the yogurt is to make an Ayurvedic buttermilk out of it, where the yogurt is used with water and it's churned. So dairy is indicated in Ayurveda. It really goes and supports the cells that we have. It The Ayurvedic buttermilk can really support the probiotic environment, but you wanna consume dairy wisely and you wanna consume it in moderation. Now let's go to the next category, which is alcohol. Again, as a lot of people are surprised to hear that meats were spoken about, alcohol was also a part of the ancient scriptures because anything to do with human life is a part of Ayurveda. And alcohol actually even has its use. A lot of Ayurvedic preparations are actually made with fermentation, a, pro a process which is very much like uh, the generation of alcohol, like the making of alcohol. And then it also talks about alcohol independently, but different alcohol has different properties. So let's talk about wine. When it comes to red wine, right? Red grapes are supposed to be this cooling, sweet, loving fruit. 
But the minute you ferment them, and think about what the process of fermentation is. It's essentially adding heat, like things kind of break down, transform, ferment. There's cultures that are activated. So the fermentation makes red wine really, really hot to digest which makes it a great accompaniment for heavy foods to break them down. But a lot of people who have inflammatory conditions, hot migraines, they can react strongly to red wine. White wine may be a little bit lighter, but then comes sake or, or rice wine. Now, rice wine is considered to be the most benign in Ayurveda when you do it right, because rice is Cooling. So if you're fermenting something that's cooling, it still will not become that hot because the basic grain used is cool. So rice wine is probably the most indicated, especially if you have a condition going on. Ayurveda also did talk about beer in detail, and it was it's pretty incredible because it talked about that when barley is brewed and fermented to become beer, what it does is fat, it affects fat metabolism. In fact, very, very clearly, there are just two sentences, one little sutra that talks about causes of inappropriate fat metabolism. And in those two lines, one of the leading causes was the overconsumption of beer. So which again, you know, for me is remarkable that the science was that intelligent back then to understand what a beer belly would mean. Now let's go to that group of food which, without which most of us cannot start our day. And let's talk about caffeine. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of you may already be bracing yourselves while listening to this, but let's get real with it. And I'll tell you that once we understand caffeine, we're able to consume it in the right way. So what caffeine does, a lot of us consume caffeine to just become active and get our energy back, which means it definitely has fire in it and elementally it wakes you up, stimulates you but it's also leaving you very dry. So what caffeine does is it goes and activates your nervous system, but like a nuclear blast, right? Which is hot for a little while and just really feisty for a little while. It kind of, after that kind of slows things down and then wind comes up in your body, just like it would at the end of a blast. And then you kind of go back to more caffeine and then there is more heat, and then there is more dryness. And if warm and moist is where balance lives, then of course hot and dry takes you away from all of that. In the long term, it can really make your gut a dry place. It can also deplete your mucus lining. Now, this does not mean that you want to give up caffeine. Yes, coffee has more caffeine than black tea, which has more caffeine than green tea but you're able to keep your caffeine as long as you can balance it well with either milk, you wanna be able to add milk in it. You can also add a cardamom pod. The cardamom kind of brings out a cooling nature and slows down that hot activity. You may have also heard of something called bullet coffee, which is kind of the rage these days. And the addition of a good fat, you know, whether it's coconut oil or it's ghee, to that coffee and emulsified well, now slows down that nuclear reaction that coffee can have in your system. But when you consume black coffee or espresso shots, those can be really, really potent. So you wanna consider moving away from them. Consuming your coffee, yes, warm temperature, because you don't wanna consume anything cold as far as possible, but add a good, good amount of milk, 
a good amount of oil or ghee and you can add in a cardamom board and you can change its consistency. Chai, which is made out of black tea, is not traditionally Ayurvedic, but because black tea came to India from China, we put an Ayurvedic twist to it and we made it into chai by adding milk and spices to make it more digestible. Green tea is a little bit milder and a little bit less potent, especially if you're not overbrewing it. Let's talk about sugar next, right? So again, evil, uh, Ayurveda has great mention of sugar when done in the right way. When you consumed, consume processed sugar, and I want us to just think about what that does. Processed sugar does not need an extra digestion. It goes right into your bloodstream. It's processed, it makes it directly to your blood. And what your blood does, which is constantly maintaining homeostasis, which is constantly releasing balancing chemicals, it senses this great spike, an instant spike. And then it feels like there's an emergency, a crisis, thereby the energy. And it releases, it gets your body to release, the pancreas to release insulin right away so you can come back to that regular level of sugar and come back to homeostasis. But in this emergency crisis, right, it can bring down your sugar to a lower level than what is desired. Then there's craving for more sugar. And this is why processed sugars are contraindicated completely. But sugars in the rock sugar form, which is a more raw, more primitive form of sugar when you can get the right source, can be very cooling in nature. In fact, it's added to a lot of Ayurvedic formulations to cool it down, to bring in that sweetness, because usually that sweet flavored things, which are liquid and sugar can melt very quickly, are cooling in nature. So rock sugar done right is indicated when it comes to consuming sugar in fruits, you want to consume it not as a juice because the juice doesn't contain fiber. When you consume the sugar in the fruit with the fiber of the fruit, it has a slow breakdown and it does not spice, spike up the sugar levels in your blood. Now, the last category for this segment is salt, right? Ayurveda talks about six different types of salts, everything from rock salt to sea salt to mineral salt. And the one that is recommended is Himalayan rock salt. And because it's been so far away from water, it is a drier variety of salt. And the drier variety of salt makes it a little less interfering in the osmosis that salt can do. People see that salt can create a lot of water retention because of its osmotic ability, because it pulls salt, it pulls water from different membranes in the body. But rock salt being a little bit drier kind of loses that ability and it's a much healthier form of salt. It is the salt that is recommended for everyday use. Other salts have their purposes more so in formulations and Ayurvedic medications when you need something sharper and more fierce. So with this, we covered a lot of different food groups and we learned that we can start assessing them elementally, start seeing whether they are cooling, whether they are warming, think about how we can balance foods. And while we couldn't cover every single item in every category or even some food categories, but we can bring this intelligence and extend it to every single thing we consume to make all our meals more Ayurvedically balanced. Now for your homework for this section, I want you to go to your kitchen and kind of pull out, you know, from each of these sections, grains, 
vegetables, lentils. See what is it that you carry and use and write them down and think about how you cook them. And then I want you to also write down in the second column is that if you were to cook them again, how were you going to cook them? How would you balance them? What would you add? Which ones would you prefer? And with these notes, you know, even subconsciously, when you've bought that, you'll see yourself reaching out for the foods that are more beneficial to you. And you'll find yourself reaching out for more balancing tools and ideas. Because really, a lot of this learning, a lot of this learning, when you do it intuitively, it really comes from a place which dictates natural action. What I've also done for you is given you a little cheat sheet that breaks down these different food groups and gives you definite preferences for what's lighter and what's more recommended under each one of these groups. Thank you so much for listening to this excerpt from Nidhi Pandya's course, Ayurvedic Nutrition. If you want to watch the full video version, which includes 10 core lessons plus a downloadable workbook, well, I encourage you to go to onecommune.com slash trial and sign up for a free trial of commune membership. That's onecommune.com slash trial. There you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to commune's entire course library including the full-length version of Ayurvedic Nutrition. Of course, feel free to email me anytime with suggestions or criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. <laughs>